You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Wicked. Who can know it? And we're also given this anonymous guy opening up the book of Psalms by giving us a description and the prescription for biblical happiness. And so if you'll join me, we'll begin in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Our psalmist starts our discussion of biblical happiness this morning by first describing what it isn't. Namely, this abundant blessedness, abundant happiness that comes from God will never happen if we take on the ways of the wicked. Our psalmist has three postures of the wicked that we'll take in turn this morning. And the first one of those is happiness will never be found if we walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, our perspective person here in Psalm 1, it just describes him as walking in the counsel of the wicked, but there's no indication of how he got there. There's no indication that he actively sought out this counsel, that he ruminated on the consequences of it, or much less the morality of it. Instead, it has the connotation of our guy just looking out the window, seeing a lot of people walking down a path, and then just following along with because he deems it as perfectly normal to just walk along with everyone else. By virtue of Romans 1, basically being a replay of the evening news at this point, there are certain presuppositions, certain lines of logic, certain conclusions that are contrary to Scripture that we're just bathed in, marinated in, brazed in, steeped in by by virtue of breathing. And if we're not careful, we can follow along right along with them. We can confuse success with significance. 
we can spend so much time thinking about our resumes that we forget our eulogies. To quote the philosopher Dave Ramsey, we can use money that we don't have to buy things that we can't afford to impress people that we don't like. We could view children as nuisances and pawns rather than gifts. We can cede reality to people who don't believe in objective reality. We can sacrifice confident daughters at the altar of confused sons. We can look to other created beings and other created things to be our saviors. Our psalmist this morning is telling us to not fall along in that temptation. With the counsel of the wicked being evangelized in everything, everywhere, all at once. It is so tempting to fall along right along with them. But our psalmist is telling us to spurn the temptation, to not walk along, to not take on that mentality, to not take on the mentality of seeing how close I can get without falling in. Because ultimately, what will happen is walking in the counsel of the wicked, if left unchecked, will lead to standing in the way of sinners. Also there in verse 1. So we're quickly having a devolution in behavior. So we've moved from maybe a passive openness to the things that are contrary to Scripture, and we're quickly trending towards active involvement. Our word for sinners here in verse 2 refers to gross, habitual, overt sin. And it goes without saying, if the psalmist doesn't want us thinking like wicked people, he doesn't want us acting like wicked people either in order to pursue this biblical happiness. Taking a step back, what what the psalmist is describing here is a rather dumb strategy. In biblical days, it was absolutely unconscionable to stand alone in a roadway. It's unthinkable. Highways and byways were highly conducive to robberies and the like where the term safety in numbers comes from. They traveled in large groups to prevent being robbed. That's why Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. If you're traveling in large groups, it's easier to assume that the other one had him. It's also why the parable of the Good Samaritan is such an accessible object lesson. Standing in the way of sinners suggests a comfort level with evil that is simply dangerous. There's no daylight between them and the people who practice the gross, overt evil implied here. 
even if they aren't engaged in every single evil act that one could be possibly engaged in, they're indistinguishable from the people who do. But just like walking in the way of sinners is left unchecked, standing in the pathway of sinners is left unchecked will eventually lead to sitting in the seat of scoffers there in verse one. So you and I can kind of deduce without thinking much what this means. In in biblical times, to be sitting, to be seating, just means that your work is done. You're at rest. And so we can kind of deduce that the people who are seated in the seat of scoffers are perfectly at home, perfectly at rest with scoffing against God, with insulting God, with mocking God. And then our minds can go very quickly to the people who have made a very public spectacle of doing that. For instance, here is this quote is really well worn by the, at this point by Richard Dawkins. But I love it because it, it encapsulates this idea of scoffing so well. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's beyond our scope to refute him today. Well, for one, how could it be all those things if he doesn't exist? But when we, when we hear the word scoffing, we think of that. Or those people, when there's a shooting at a Christian school, maybe the people didn't pray good enough. We think, when we think of scoffing, that's what we think of. It is that, but it's more than that. Our word for scoffer here could be translated as ambassador. So not only do these people delight in insulting God, they accumulate more delight to themselves when other people scoff at God because of them. If the domain of darkness had a diplomat, But what is so scary is, in order to scoff at God, in order to insult God, in order to mock God, I don't have to toss together bombastic word salads like that one. I can scoff at God without saying a word. Every time I hear scripture and refuse to do what it says, whenever I hear something plain 
obviously plain in Scripture, but that doesn't comport with my preconceived biases. And so I just start to try to explain it away. I, I can scoff at God without saying a word. There is abundant caution and warning here for both the depraved and the deceived. If we find ourselves in the place of ridiculing or mocking God, or perfectly at home with the people who do, then we will have found ourselves to be in the most wicked of places. Because not only do the wicked have a fundamental disposition, they also have a fundamental destiny. If you look with me again at verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Long before combines and harvesters and tractors with GPS coordinates and that they could monitor soil moisture content and yield per acre. All a farmer had was a winnowing fork. And so what would happen is on, on the day of harvest, I, as an ancient farmer, would take wheat and a cart with my oxen, and hopefully there was a hill close by. And so what I would do is just go to the hill and, and wait for wind and just take my fork and just throw it up in the air. And so what would happen is the heavier wheat berries would fall to the ground and then the chaff would just blow away. Because as an ancient farmer, that is precisely what I wanted. The, the wheat berries were, were useful either for produce or profit. But the chaff was absolutely useless. As an ancient farmer, I can't plant chaff and have it sprout roots. That's a waste of time. I can't water it and have it grow foliage. That's a waste of resources. The only useful thing I can do with chaff is to burn it. And that is precisely the imagery that the psalmist has here. For now, it appears that the wicked have it all together, running to and fro and collecting their treasures and their trinkets and things. But ultimately, the day will come when they will be tossed to the wind, never to be seen from or heard from again. The same thing will happen with all of us. In 60 years, every single thing we own will be owned by somebody else. <laughs> a lot sooner for some of us. A few years after that, our grand, great-grandkids won't even know our names. A few years after that, and the only people who will ever know we existed is the landscape crew at the graveyard. 
And such it is with the wicked. Because they viewed God's word as useless, he will view them as useless. And the wind will blow them away. Chaff can't stand still on a good day, much less in the winds of judgment. But if we don't have to be chaff, no one wants to be useless. No one wants to have an eternally useless life. As G.K. Chesterton once said, there are so many ways to fall, but there's only one way to stand. Look with me at the position of the righteous in verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We winked at it earlier, but our word for blessed here is plural, meaning abundant blessedness or abundant happiness. And we looked at this verse before in in the negative, what not to do, how not to think. But as any good ex-legalist will tell you, This abundant happiness or abundant blessedness from God isn't found merely in what you leave, but in what you love. It isn't found in what you avoid, but in what you adore. The righteous life involves emotion. Some a thousand years after this, Jesus will say that to love God with all of your heart, it presupposes that you can. This righteous person loves God with all of their heart, and that love is manifesting in joy in what God has to say. Look with me at verse 2. But his delight is is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Our word for meditates means to murmur or to read aloud. The general idea is that our person here in the psalm is constantly contemplating, incessantly pondering, constantly contemplating The word of God. Why? Because he he wants to bring all of God to all of his life. Why? Because he loves him. Does that describe you this morning? Can it be said of you that you delight in God's word? Can it be said of you that you desire to bring all of God to all of life? Or are you like so many of us, that there are portions of life that are simply off limits? As if, right? But I love God, you say. 
I come every week. I give. It's automatically drafted. I've stacked chairs. It's not what I said. I'm being a stickler about it because the psalmist is being a stickler about it. Do you delight in God's word? Because he lays out a rather stark dichotomy. Either I delight in God's word or I am wicked. There's no space here that he's left for lukewarmness. No quarter for apathy. There are no teams with 500 records making the eternal playoffs. If the general gestalt of our lives is not delight in God's word, just means that we're wicked. But I love God you say. Imagine with me for a moment that your significant other is gone on a trip. They've been gone, let's just call it six months. So every time we see you, you are just singing their praises. Oh, I love him so much. Oh, I miss her so much. She makes my motor run. He's the wind beneath my wings. But yet, if we saw your phone, every single text message is unread. Every single voicemail is unheard. Every single DM is unseen. If we went to your house, every single letter that they wrote you is on a basket unopened on the coffee table. What happens? We get to legitimately ask whether or not you love them. Because how can you say, how dare you say that you love them when you don't care what they say? And yet God has written for us. It's been preserved for 2,000 years by the blood, sweat, and tears of other people. And yet we refuse to open it. So how dare we say that we love God because of it? We can say that we love God, but we can rightfully call it into question. May I encourage you this morning, may I implore you this morning to assume the position of the righteous. Repent of the apathy. Ask God for forgiveness for the procrastination. Ask for his help to delight in his word. Because not only do abundant happiness and abundant blessedness await those who delight in his word, but also stability and fruitfulness. Notice what happens to this righteous man in verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As opposed to being blown away like chaff, 
He's planted by streams of water. Rather than being just an undesirable byproduct of waste of a harvest, the person who delights in God's word, there is an abundant harvest. It yields its fruit in its season. We struggling gardeners know that having anything bear what it's supposed to when it's supposed to is no small feat. Of course, a plant needs enough sunlight and enough water. But the good farmers, the good gardeners here would tell you, if you want better crops, if you want a higher yield, then you really don't focus that much on the actual plants you're growing. Rather, the vast majority of your time should be focused on the soil that those plants are growing in. So plants and trees need three major macronutrients. There's nitrogen that spurs root growth. And there's also phosphorus that deals with plant growth. And then there's also potassium that deals with fruit yield and and the amount. And if any of those three are lacking, then there's not really going to be nearly the harvest that there could be. It goes without saying that roots, if they're not well established, they're not going to produce a plant. But leaves that wither don't produce fruit either. So what the psalmist is describing here is that this tree has been planted in perfect living conditions. But notice, he doesn't say, he doesn't give a specific spot where this tree was planted. So we can't very well say, well, it's in Eden. Of course it grew. So many of us, we think, if only. I would be more righteous if my kids behaved better. I would be more righteous if there were fewer demands on my time. I could knock out this delight in God's word thing if my spouse acted right, so forth and so on. However, if you have been transplanted this morning, then you already have all of the nutrients that you could possibly have to grow into mighty fruit trees for his kingdom. Delight in God's word will eventually make any and every situation the perfect situation for his glory. There are certain words in the English language that we can't hear them without thinking of all the negative connotations and all of the baggage that come along with equality, for instance, or justice. Prosperity happens to be one of those words. We hear the word prosperity these days in an American context, 
And of course, we have the, almost immediately, there's this spiritual cosmic blab it and grab it scheme, right? I planted my seed. Where's my harvest? Cha-ching. But that, that's not what's going on. Think through this. What is the deeper, surer prosperity? The truest prosperity to reflect the glory of God. You people who know the Westminster Confession, you're, you're hearing the echo in your head. What is the chief aim of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. A thousand years after this psalm, Jesus will say, by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Sure, when we desire to bring all of God to all of life, our lives will look remarkably different from those who don't. For example, when we work as unto the Lord, our work ethic will look remarkably different from those around us. Marriages that are based on biblical love and respect just by default tend to be the most stable around. When we align our lives around God's principles, when we grow deeper into this unchanging word of God, or when we, as Soren Kierkegaard once said, when we think God's thoughts after them, it will lead to a more stable, more abundant, less dramatic life than those who don't. But in many cases, to the wicked and watching world, it may look like failure sometimes. We don't play office politics or step on other people's heads so that we can go above them. Just work circles around everybody else. How quaint. Or we may just leave the workforce to spend time with our kids or make tents in Timbuktu. We don't sacrifice the well-beings of marriages and parenthood for some desperate and fleeting attempt at self-actualization because we understand that our identity is in Christ. Whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning is the perfect situation precisely because we are there. It's where he's transplanted us and he doesn't make mistakes. Surely, and gradually, delight in God's word will cause us to grow into an oasis in a vapid wasteland. God has the opportunity to make the Sahara an orchard because we are there. 
shining our light before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Wait a minute, dude. You have said that the only way to avoid this wicked judgment that's coming is to delight in the Bible. And yet that is the one thing I cannot do. Aren't you setting me up for failure? Well, yeah, sorry. But there is one who came before you who always perfectly and constantly delighted in God's word. He once said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So not only did he perfectly delight in God's word, he viewed it as his sustenance. And not only that, but he is the word of God made incarnate. He became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only did he perfectly delight in God's word, not only did he view it as a sustenance, not only was he the incarnate God brought, incarnate word brought into flesh, but he more than anyone else in history brought all of God to all of life. More than anyone in history, he was poor in spirit. He humbled himself. He did not view equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was poor in spirit so that the kingdom of heaven could be ours. More than anyone in history, Jesus mourned over sin not his own sin, but mine and yours. Jesus, more than anyone, mourned so that we could be comforted. Jesus, more than anyone, was meek when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was meek so that we could inherit the earth. More than anyone, Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness so that we could be satisfied. More than anyone, Jesus was merciful so that we could receive mercy. More than anyone, he was pure in heart so that we could see God. More than anyone, he came to bring peace so that we could be called the sons of God. More than anyone, he was persecuted for righteousness' sake and was reviled and persecuted for God's name's sake so that our reward could be great in the kingdom of heaven. 
come and see this resurrected Christ? The one who perfectly brought all of God to all of life. And so, yes, there was love and joy and peace and patience, but there was also holiness and justice and wrath and isolation. God made him who knew no sin, the perfect embodiment, the prototype, the paragon of sin on our behalf so that we might become the perfect embodiment, the prototype, the paragon of righteousness. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our procrastination for his greatest priority. He exchanged our apathy for his adoration, our lukewarmness for his love, our drudgery, our derision for his delight. Praise be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for our apathy regarding your word, our lukewarmness, our procrastination in making everything else more important. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice so that even in our sin, you made a pathway for us to delight in God's word so that we can stand in the congregation of the righteous. And so, Holy Spirit, for those of us who believe, help our unbelief and fill us all with a delight of God's word so that we can be conformed to the image of the Son, to the glory of the Father. Amen.